Welcome to chapter 30 of the History of England. I'm David Beeson, and it's time to party. Or at least time to look at that wonderful system so many of us are still blessed with today, party politics. Do you remember the Earl of Clarendon? He's the guy originally known as Edward Hyde before he got himself ennobled by Charles II. He became the king's chief minister and later his useful scapegoat. Scapegoat for what, you might ask? Well, as it happens, for a lot of things. We saw that he helped arrange Charles's marriage to the Portuguese princess Catherine of Braganza, and when she failed to produce any legitimate children to inherit the throne, a lot of people felt he was to blame. The attacks on him intensified when Charles's brother James, first a suspected Catholic, later a known one, did produce children. This was suspicious since, for as long as Charles had no legitimate kids, James was his heir and his children would inherit the throne after him. And who was the mother of James's kids? Why, Clarendon's own daughter, Anne Hyde. It didn't matter that she'd married James against her father's wishes. In the febrile atmosphere of conspiracy theories in England, it was easy to believe that Clarendon had carefully orchestrated things to marry the king to an infertile bride and put his own grandchildren onto the English throne. On top of that came the disastrous end of the war England joined with Catholic France against the Protestant Dutch. You may recall that lots of people disliked the idea of fighting fellow Protestants alongside a Catholic power, and they disliked being beaten even more. That had happened on Clarendon's watch, so it was obviously his fault. Two other things that happened while he was chief minister were the plague of London in 1665 and the fire the following year. Clearly, his detractors claimed, his fault too. I'm not quite sure how he could have prevented either, but hey, when looking for scapegoats, no one's ever needed either fairness or even logic. The Merry Monarch proved a bit less than merry at the end of Clarendon's time in office. He turned his back on Clarendon, his long-standing and loyal servant, who had to clear off a brawl before Parliament impeached him, rightly as it happens, for taking liberties with other people's liberty, notably by sending individuals he disapproved of to the Channel Island of Jersey, which is outside English jurisdiction, without the benefit of a trial. A fine early example of rendition. He lived out the rest of his life in growing ill health and subject to repeated assaults on his character and reputation, and even on his life, but at least he managed to finish his major book, A History of the Rebellion and Civil Wars in England. Following Clarendon, there was quite a curious little interlude. England had its first, and so far, only cabal government. A cabal is, of course, a secret group exercising power in often sinister ways. But now imagine the word in capital letters, and it becomes the initials of the five members of this particular cabal. Clifford, Ashley, Buckingham, Arlington and Lauderdale. One of those names ought to be familiar to you. Buckingham was the son of the inept Duke who'd provided such loyal but bungling support to James I and then Charles I. These five characters fell out with each other, as any group inevitably will if it tries to govern together without a single one of them in charge. The government eventually collapsed. They were replaced by a man they'd mentored. This was Thomas Osborne, later made Earl of Danby by Charles. He ran the government for five years with the favour of the king, whose authority he did all he could to increase. 
In fact, he went so far in that direction that eventually a group in Parliament began to wonder whether he wasn't about to build a system in which the king would once more be seen as ruling by divine right, as Charles I had believed, or Louis XIV in France still insisted. That group and its supporters favoured a monarchy based on law, but feared that Danby would put the king and, indeed, the Anglican bishops somehow beyond the reach of the law. Funnily enough, one of the leading men in the faction opposing Danby was a former member of the Cabal. You wouldn't necessarily know it from his name, though. That's because, as we've seen, members of the British aristocracy like to take different aliases at different stages of their careers. It was the case of Danby himself, who'd started out life as Thomas Osborne, or Clarendon, who was originally known as Edward Hyde. The one we're dealing with now was Anthony Ashley Cooper. He'd been one of the A's in the cabal since he was known as Lord Ashley at that time. Later he became the Earl of Shaftesbury, so I hope it won't be too confusing if I call him that from now on. So we had Danby facing off against Shaftesbury, and men started to group around each of them and go into political battle with each other. Do you remember that when the Titus Oates scandal was at its peak, the huge wave of popular anger that had shaken the whole country had even brought down the government of the day? That was Danby's government. Although Charles liked to think of himself as a powerful monarch like Elizabeth I, there were levels of popular anger he could ultimately do nothing about. As well as being attracted by an authoritarian view of monarchy, Danby had been corrupt so Parliament moved to impeach him. To stop it going there, Charles preferred to dismiss Parliament and, for the first time in 18 years, finally call new elections. The results weren't what he wanted. Shaftesbury's lot won a landslide majority. He went into battle against the King. The question he chose to focus on was the succession to the throne. Since Charles still hadn't produced a legitimate child, it looked like the throne would go to his Catholic brother James in the end. That was a prospect that filled Protestant politicians like Shaftesbury with apprehension. He set out to pass legislation that would exclude James from the succession, precipitating what came to be known as the Exclusion Crisis. He suggested that what was needed was for the king to remarry, and to choose a Protestant this time, to produce a Protestant heir. Alternatively, he could legitimise his illegitimate son, the Protestant Duke of Monmouth. Charles was furious. If you believe that kings are divinely appointed, you can't possibly allow Parliament to tell you who should inherit the throne and who shouldn't. You may remember something a little similar from modern times, when the death of Princess Diana and the unpopularity of Prince Charles led many to call for him to be denied the succession after Elizabeth II. That got knocked on the head because, even if no one believes in divine right anymore, the kind of system where you get to choose the head of state is called a republic. In a monarchy, there is no choice. But let's return to the time of the exclusion crisis. Charles II surprisingly revealed himself to be a far more astute politician at the end of his life than one might have imagined. He came up with a compromise solution that would maintain intact the principle that the legitimate heir would inherit the throne, however unpopular he might be. He suggested that James would succeed him, but would leave the Church of England as a Protestant institution, 
and give up his authority to appoint army officers or leading figures in the church. Charles had called no elections for 18 years, but throughout that time he'd had the Cavalier Parliament, stuffed with men who broadly supported the king, that had given him no really serious problems. But a parliament where Shaftesbury had a majority was another matter. The following year, Charles tried again with another election, but to his dismay, Shaftesbury won again. That, though, proved Shaftesbury's undoing. He became overconfident at winning a second time. He decided to reject the king's compromise solution to the succession problem. That put him in the position of the man refusing a reasonable solution. By then, what's more, Charles had received another hefty subsidy from the French king. He'd also got a lot more organised to be able to pressurise, buy or suborn support in the constituencies. For the third time in three years in a row, he called an election and this time he won. Poor old Shaftesbury. He'd overreached and he'd lost. It meant that the exclusion crisis was over. James would inherit the throne if Charles did indeed die without legitimate children. Indeed, Charles, with plenty of his own supporters in Parliament now, could start to weed out his opponents. Shaftesbury himself had to clear off into exile where he died just like Clarendon before him. But in the meantime, something had changed. Charles had his supporters controlling Parliament and would for the rest of his reign. But just who were they? The two groups that had emerged, one supporting the position of the king, the other Shaftesbury's, had started to realise that they could achieve more by working together than they could as individuals. Each started to meet, separate from the other, to plan their work and campaign for their positions. Coffee houses became the rallying points for both of them. Today, English cafes are keen to get clients to leave quickly, not to sit there all day taking advantage of the free Wi-Fi. Back then, though, there was no Wi-Fi, so groups could meet and talk and organise over the much-appreciated, but, to our tastes, unappetising sludge they served as coffee. Both groups began to publish news sheets called Separates to promote their views. There were satirical verses and derogatory cartoons. And because no Englishman is ever going to pass up the opportunity to abuse an opponent, they came up with insulting names for each other. What's more, since Englishmen love to hate a foreigner, the insulting terms each group found for the other suggested that they had some kind of foreign connection, and Scotland and Ireland were definitely foreign for these purposes. Those who backed the idea of limited royal power, the Shaftesbury approach, were accused by their opponents of promoting the kind of ideas that had precipitated the civil wars. You'll remember that they started when Charles I moved against the Scots Presbyterians, so this group were called Whigamores, a term for Scots Presbyterians, which was soon abbreviated to Whigs. As for the Whigs, they saw the other lot as committed to a regime that was far too soft on Catholics. So they branded them as no different from Ireland's Catholic insurgents, known as Toreg in Irish. For an English speaker, it isn't obvious how to pronounce that word. I'm far from convinced that I've got it right. So a shorter anglicised term was soon adopted, Tories. The name stuck. Eventually the groups came to adopt them and wear them as their official labels. They weren't yet political parties in the modern sense. People could move from one to the other on a whim, or if the other side seemed to offer better prospects of advancement. 
but they were nonetheless the beginnings of a political system based on parties who could fight their battles without actually coming to blows, the kind of system we still enjoy today, if enjoy is the right word. Incidentally, when I say without coming to blows, they very nearly did during the exclusion crisis. Charles raised troops ostensibly for war against France, but Shaftesbury denounced the move as a threat to Parliament. Since at that time he'd been imprisoned in the Tower of London for being nasty about the King and the House of Lords, one can see that his view of Charles's behaviour would have been far from rosy. He also ended up calling for an uprising against Charles. Still, in the end, the crisis was resolved without a shot being fired. The battle remained purely political. Charles had won, but without resorting to warlike means. When Charles finally popped off to face his maker, surrounded as usual by mistresses, partying, friends, gamblers and drinkers, it seemed as though skilful politicking had after all secured the authority of the crown where it really mattered in God's hands and driven the opposition into a corner. Then he had a Catholic priest hear his confession. I presume an abridged version, since I imagine confessing all his sins would have taken far too long. He took absolution and fulfilled his brother's cherished wish by entering the embrace of the Roman faith on his deathbed. Charles died a Catholic. But for all his clever dealings with the opposition and despite his victory during the exclusion crisis, the deep current of anti-Catholic feeling in the country hadn't changed. It was there, smarting a little, but ready to break out again. All it would need was to see another Stuart, even more unbending and unwise than the previous three, making a truly catastrophic mess of things. Cue James II, our subject for the next episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>